1: That right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome everyone to the uh, Anthropology channel of the New Books Network. My name is Armand Childers, and I, today I have the great pleasure of hosting Moises Lino e Silva, uh, who wrote this amazing ethnography called Minoritarian Liberalism, A a Life in a Brazilian Favela, that came out last month from University of Chicago, uh, Chicago Press. Welcome, Moises.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's great to not just be here with you, but also to know that people are reading the book, it's so exciting just after you write and work for so long and then people start to interact and engage. So thank you for the invitation and I look forward to um, this conversation.
1: Oh, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, so before we start talking about the book, maybe we can get to know you a little bit first. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself?
0: Well, there are many things that actually you know make this book possible. So I did my undergrad in Brazil, but I also spent um, some time in the United Kingdom doing my master's and PhD um, in London and then in Scotland. And when I was doing my fieldwork during the PhD program, I was actually traveling from Scotland and that was an interesting exercise to go back to my home country, but I was coming from abroad. And I'm not from Rio either. So I'm not from Rio de Janeiro, the city where I did my field work. I come from a different part of the Brazilian Midwest. So the encounters and the conversations around accents and, you know, why are you doing this this way? And people in the field questioning some things. I think they were very interesting as uh, some, you know, some sort of uh, reverse anthropology, you could call it. But people trying to make sense of me and trying to understand me and how come you're Brazilian, but you live abroad, and then you live in, you know, you're live in—you going to move to the Chantitã, to the favela, as we call it in Portuguese. So I think there is something about that life trajectory kind of from Brazil abroad and back. And now I work and teach in Brazil again. So there is this back and forth that it's interesting for an anthropology in terms of um, thinking difference and how difference operates. And in some other levels, I mean, as a as a gay man, uh, doing field work with um, kind of the queer community in the Shanti town, we were very close in some ways. There were there were moments that I felt very close to people on that basis, on kind of the minoritarian aspect of sexuality and gender. And uh, we could have kind of easy conversations and would hang out. And my network of friends, ex- uh, queer friends, expanded really quickly. And um, I think that's very interesting. it's something that um, Don Kulik, in that you know, famous book called Travishi, which is also part of my book, uh, I mean, the topic of Travishi life, that's the subtitle of the book. But Don Kulik also talks about that, right? And how at some points maybe... Being a female would be more difficult to do research with travesties because it could, for example, generate competition or something. But with him, uh, he felt that being a gay man kind of helped him in his research. So just to give you a little taste of my background and how it uh, kind of affected the the field work, and I do not hide that in the book, or I try not to hide that. I think acknowledging your positionality is really important.
1: Mm-hmm. And how did you decide to work on this topic? How did this book come out?
0: <laughs> well, that's a very good um, question, too, because it's a long story of, you know, Rio. Rio de Janeiro is where you have kind of the, it's the Hollywood of Brazil. It's where you have the main TV channels, where movies are made, most movies, but um, soap, opera, soap operas are usually based uh, in Rio, and... Um, of course there are other locations but that is the capital where this tv channel called global which is very important for you know brazilian life because it's so powerful um that's where it's based and i was born in this midwest part of brazil so it was far removed from the beach context you know there was no beach culture there was we were in the midwest with no sea and our brazil was very different from the brazil i was watching on tv um so I was always fascinated by Rio as a city, very beautiful with mountains and the, you know, amazing beach life and so on. But it was also shocking to see the shanty towns uh, in Rio, almost as if you had two you know, cities. Some people have actually called it a fractured city that you have the shanty towns and then very close to the shanty towns, you have the, those wealthy neighborhoods that you know people know. So I was very puzzled by all that. And as I was growing up, of course, you start to become more aware of the political uh, dimension of this problem and how come the situation is exists and how come people tolerate this. So I started to study and get more and more engaged. And I thought at the point I reached a PhD level that doing a research on exactly that kind of urban question would be an interesting topic. But what I really thought... That I would do was to document ethnographically how people in those shanty towns actually, because in those territories the state is not present in the way it should be, how those people somehow had less rights or access to rights, including rights and like that was my main concern, rights over freedom, freedom and liberties, right? So in a way I assume that favela territories. They have a different relationship with the state, and that relationship actually makes life in Shantitans uh, have less freedom and less liberties than life outside of Shanty Tans. That's what I assumed, and I wrote my project, and I went to the field, and I soon after starting fieldwork realized that I wasn't quite right. And in anthropology, that's a good thing. I usually say that to my students. My my PhD students and uh, just tell them, you know, if you find out that you're not exactly right in what you wrote in your research project before fieldwork, that's a good thing because you don't want to know everything in advance, right? That's the whole point of doing fieldwork is that hopefully you'll find out that you're wrong or hopefully you find out something that you didn't think about. And those things we don't think about, they're usually the most interesting. Um, So in my case, what I realized was that there were lots of forms and modes of freedoms and liberties in daily life in shanty towns, just that I wasn't very familiar with them. So just that I hadn't really considered them. And so my research changed from trying to document ethnographically the lack of freedom to document whatever forms and modes of freedom I would encounter regardless of if I considered them legitimate or not, if I considered them appropriate or not. So I just started to kind of like trace them in daily life. And even not even I wasn't prompting, I wasn't interviewing people. I was living there and waiting to see when, you know, somebody would say something about freedom or when a practice related to freedom would um, happen or not happen. And that's how kind of I took it, you know, following also a little bit of the British model of long, long term field work and immersing yourself in daily life and interviews is something that if you do, you do it towards the end of your field work. but the most important thing is to share life, and that's how my research went. And I think uh, it's an interesting. It wasn't the book I was meant to write, but I think it's the book I could write based on my field work. And I hope people like it.
1: And uh, definitely yes, but also I mean, maybe for those of us or those of our listeners who hasn't read the book yet, like what are what was the, what were the ethnographic? What can you draw us an ethnographic picture of what this book is about? Right. So you
0: know, like um, when I assumed there were no freedoms in the in the shanty town, or that freedoms were limited. I was really basing myself on what I knew related to how freedoms operate in a state where, you know, the state guarantees some rights, including freedom, and the state demands some loyalty. So you give up some of your individual power to the state. It's a, you know, the, the philosophical theory of contractualism and the political theory so one of liberalism that says, we give up some of our powers to this entity called the state, and this state will protect us and give us some rights, including rights over freedom, but also importantly, rights over, for example, private property. And I think I had that kind of story in mind. like That narrative was in my mind when I was thinking about do people have or not have freedoms. I was following some of those expectations that in the book I now call normative expectations because they kind of are a form of um, normative understanding of what freedoms and liberties are. And I started to think about where did they come from and Mm -hmm. when, so in my undergrad, that's when I studied political theory first. And I was thinking, you know, those authors were really European authors. Most of them, you know, the philosophers were European philosophers, a lot of Scottish philosophers too. Um, and uh, the events that we use to refer to that, you know, to to understand liberty, they're very related to um, the Glorious Revolution, the French Revolution, and then, of course, events in the United States of America, right? So I started to kind of give, make a genealogy and think about what I understood freedoms and liberties to be, and I realized they were very Eurocentric. And, of course, nowadays, maybe the U.S. is even more of a... Uh, kind of center for those kind of forms of liberal thinking and during field work as I was encountering different experiences in living life with people in the town, which in Portuguese we call favelas uh, there were many forms of freedoms and liberties that they didn't follow that model they didn't follow that you know kind of normative understanding of freedom and then I also kind of realize that a lot of other forms and freedoms and liberties they exist. It's, it's just that sometimes we think of them as somehow inferior or not really legitimate or um, in, in some case immoral. Right? So a lot of the book, for example, focuses on sexual and, and gender performances and um, understandings of freedom and liberty connected to the body and to sexuality. And it's interesting because in Portuguese we have a word that's called libertina or libertino, which is a libertine. That word is not very common in English. I had a conversation with my editor as was writing the book. But it what it does in Portuguese is to differentiate that you have liberdade as a kind of a legitimate form of freedom, and you have the libertine or libertino uh, as kind of like. Uh, an abuse of freedom or too much freedom or um, immoral an immoral type of freedom. So as I was thinking through this, I thought there was no reason for me as I'm encountering these forms of freedom in the Shantytown, such as freedoms related to the body and sexuality, particularly connected to the life of the queer um, groups in the Shantytown to assume that they are like, that they should follow this hierarchy of values because what tells me that this is not um, important or that this is immoral, it's actually a normative understanding of freedom that's very eurocentric. and if anything, you know this is an opportunity here in my book and this research to state very clearly that there are so many other forms of freedom and that they are not inferior right that that they it's an effort to um, make them symmetric you know to make people understand that they should be symmetric to um european philosophy you know i, I know that liberalism is a, it's a very cherished value for europeans and americans and you know philosophers and political theorists it's a very sensitive i mean people really are attached to this idea of liberalism and that's i think one of the main points of the book is to make people doubt that what they understand to be freedoms and liberties are actually the only um, modes or forms or um, legitimate forms of freedom and liberty, and what to do with the what I call minoritarian forms is something that I discuss here, right? And minoritarian forms are not just related to sexuality. So, um, as I met people in kind of the Shantytown, and I started to circulate, and as I said, trace, I was tracing. Whenever people spoke something of freedom or liberty, or in Portuguese, actually, we only have one word it's liberdade for both freedom and liberty. That's important, I think. Uh, but I was tracing words, but also tracing events and actions. So I saw at some point that an evangelical church, they were doing liberation services. And to me, it's like, yeah, that's something I need to trace. I need to do more research. I need to ethnographically um, understand. So I ended up, for example, going to the evangelical churches in the Town to understand what were the evangelical liberation services about. And you see this the, 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 I, version, this mode of freedom related to religion, I had not really considered much in my proposal exactly because we think that uh, religion should be separate from the state and, you know, we, we have ideas that as ideally there should be a separation between our kind of politics, what we call politics, and religion, as if religion wasn't political, as if in religion uh, there were no discussions around what freedom is. And what I try to do in the book is to connect those, those discussions.
1: I mean, and then you ended up in the police station for a question. That's too much, I guess.
0: <laughs> no, that's true. And, I think that's very important because it it relates to what I wanted to say, which is so this one very large evangelical church in Brazil decided that somehow they were suspicious of what I was doing because I was taking notes during the service. And um, in fact, they had been investigated for money laundering. So uh, they thought that I could be a reporter or something like this. And they wanted me to give them my notes and I wouldn't give them my notes so um, instead of giving them my notes they kind of took me out of church by force and they confiscated my notes by force and uh, it's 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 interesting because even though it was and kind of a ritual or service for liberation i those rights that i thought i had including rights over like taking notes uh they did not really work in that context, so my friends from the Shanty Town were the ones who advised me you should, you should just go to to the police station, and I thought that was weird because in the Shantytown, we do not attract the police to the Shantytown. The ter that territory is usually under the kind of control of drug lords, and uh, but they said no, no, th- there's no problem because this the, this police station is outside of the Shantytown just go there and you file a report against the church. And when I got there, actually the report stated very clearly that the church was going against my individual rights. And and then you see how those um, different forms and understandings of freedom and what liberty means, they actually connect at some point. And just to finish this part related to the church, it took me a long time thinking so is this liberation service, service at the evangelical church a minoritarian form of freedom or a normative form of freedom? And because it's so different from the state kind of freedom, I thought, well, at first I thought it would be a minoritarian form. But as I define in the book, um, kind of a minoritarian and a normative position, there, one of the differences there is that in a minoritarian position, you do not try to impose um, a certain value as a universal value. And as I think of what the evangelicals were doing, they were very much trying to uh, have a sense of liberation that was universal, except that it wasn't based on the laws of the state, it was based on the laws of God. And so in that chapter, I come to the conclusion, well, this is very much a normative project, but... What it does is to show that even normative liberalism doesn't operate in only one way. So that, you know, maybe there are relations. It's not by chance, I think, that the current president in Brazil was elected with the support of a lot of evangelicals, right? There is a connection there in in the way they operate, but from different sides. So you have the state operating ideas on freedom based on the rule of law, and you have the church based on the rule of God, but somehow they come along uh, in their morality, they come along in their, in the, currently in Brazil, in a lot of their projects. That's not to say that all forms of freedom and liberty in religion are um, normative, because in Afro Brazilian religions, I encountered a lot of minoritarian forms of freedom. And that relationship also between the Afro-Brazilian religions and the evangelical church is at the center of that chapter because there's a lot of religious racism going on in Brazil.
1: Uh, I mean, this is fascinating to listen to from you. And I want to ask you, how did you decide to center the narrative around Natasha?
0: Right. So, Natasha dedicate this book to Natasha. And uh, it wouldn't, I mean, the book wouldn't be possible without her. And it was, you know, it happened through this amazing encounter by chance. I was starting my field work and still learning my way around. And Rio de Janeiro is a very warm city, and the Chantitan is so dense that there is very little airflow. I was on a, kind of a, the first floor, the you know, the ground floor of a building, so there was there wasn't a lot of air. And at some point, I really needed to find something to drink, and a neighbor which is also a very close friend who lived upstairs from me said, you know, let's go and buy some fruit. So we wanted to buy some fruit and kind of refresh ourselves eating some fresh fruit, which is a, you know, have a lot, a lot of good fruits in Brazil. So we went out and we bought, I bought the slice of watermelon and it's one of my favorite scenes in the book. Actually I was just outside eating my watermelon and I hear this voice coming from behind me and, um, this voice said, "Delicious," and I didn't. Know he was very close to me, so I had to look back, and I was kind of, uh-huh, or, "What is this?" And I see Natasha, which I didn't know at the time, but I thought she was looking at my watermelon, and instead, she was looking at my lips, and there was this like an awkward moment of what's going on here, and somehow that moment fascinated me. I was. Surprised by that approach, but at the same time, she was so interesting and she seemed so full of life and and you know humor and so. But that encounter didn't last long. I went back home and my neighbor is the one who told me, no, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of her. You shouldn't be afraid of Natasha. She's a, she's actually a very good person. And the reason why she had to say that it's because usually, so Natasha considers herself um, as a. Travesti, she would call herself a travesti, and a travesti. I don't know. I mean, for people that haven't read the book, but um, the travesti book by Don Kulik But even if you have the the definitions kind of you know there's a an argument or it's contested around what a, a travesti means, but it's not the same as a transvestite in English, and uh, it's much more of a Latin American kind of gender category, and travestis are usually uh, born with, you know, bodies that were declared masculine bodies or male bodies at birth. And they choose a female gender expression, which is not uh, temporary. So it's not about, you know, one day uh, you you have a female gender expression, the next day you don't. But it's temporary. It's, It's more permanent, but it's not permanent in the sense that there is only one form, right? It's more permanent, but Natasha herself would tell me some days she liked to have more boobs and some some days she would like to have no boobs. And, um, what, what she would say is that she, she liked the way that people were puzzled by her and her choices and how she dressed and how she behaved. But, um, so Natasha was the first travesti I met and from the reason why my neighbor had to say don't be afraid is because Brazilians usually only know travestis as sex workers and they only know travestis as, you know, people that work during the night that um, somehow are seen as dangerous because they could supposedly rob people or that they're aggressive. Uh, so I think her when she was saying don't be afraid was to make me okay with with as if like I as if I was coming from this understanding that travesties are, by default, dangerous. But without that connection with Natasha, and she introduced me to other travesties and other, you know, queer folks, without that connection, the stories of the book wouldn't exist because, if you notice, I mean, Natasha is a narrative arc, right? I mean, her life is kind of a, a support. There is an argument, which is theoretical in this book, but there is also... Uh, To me, it was very important to have a story and to have uh, what I wanted to be a good story. And my kind of adventures with Natasha, the way we went out, the way I learned things with her, the way we met people together, the way I went back to visit her hometown, those are things, are threads that, you know, chapter by chapter, you can see how Natasha, a friend of mine said, I like the way that Natasha is kind of sprinkled Right, you have like a little little bit of Natasha everywhere,
1: and I mean it. It also works very well, right? Like it was really reading this book. It was, I would say, yes. I mean the swing between uh, a theory, theory, like heavy theoretical argument, I would say, and a beautifully written story. Um, and I also want to ask you, like, how. Um, what was your process like? I mean, I, I, you said this is from your dissertation, right? So, what was it like to turn this dissertation into a book? Which I'm also obviously asking for uh, selfish reasons as a dissertation oh, well, writer. That's a
0: wonderful <laughs> question, and I, you know, I don't know how it is for you right now, writing, working on your own dissertation, but I wasn't uh, when I did my own PhD we were not writing dissertations that were more geared as a publication um, in terms of a book, right? I mean, the format that you expect from a thesis or a dissertation, in in Portuguese we call it thesis, in English dissertation, right? What um, you expect from a dissertation is not exactly what a a good book is. So people say a good dissertation is not a good book, and a good book is not a good dissertation, because they have different audiences and different objectives. So... But when I finished my, my dissertation, actually, I had an opportunity to publish uh, much, something much closer to what I had done in my PhD, which is it, it's interesting because the topics are very similar, of course, and the fieldwork is the same. But what I wrote for my PhD is extremely different, very, very different. And I had um, just, I was expecting, I had different ambitions. So I was very much uh, engaged in kind of rethinking modes of writing, and I didn't want to structure the chapters as a kind of linear narrative, and I wanted it to be different. So I, in for my PhD, I had the chapters divided by the words. So part of the vocabulary of freedom that I encountered in the Shantytown, my in my PhD, that's how the work is structured. So in one chapter, you have the word in Portuguese, liberdade, the next one, libertina or liberada. So word by word, chapter by chapter, I would only tell the story of that word and how it circulated. Well, what happened was that I thought, as I started teaching, I think that's really fundamental, how teaching helps understand more the perspective of um. Students, too. I mean, as a student, PhD student, you think you need to be innovative. But when you're teaching, you see what, for example, undergrads like or don't like in a book or what they like or don't like when they read a text. And more and more, I realize that it's not just like this innovative, you know, the, the way you structure your, your work or it's not only... Um, the innovative writing aspect that will make a good story so I started to question more and more if I wanted to publish my work as it was and I thought at some point that I would rewrite it uh, and when I say rewrite it was a deep rewriting it wasn't like a light rewriting and a lot of other friends were, um, they were skeptical about what I was doing because they thought you know that dissertation is good enough and you have the chance to publish, and you know how the academic world works. If you have publications, you should have them. So why not just publish what you could publish and then move on and write a different book? But I really felt um, that there was, I thought that my field work, you know, I, I did really intense field work. I spent almost seven months without like going out to the Town for a night. I was really in this mode. I need to be here all the time. So I thought that the experience of fieldwork had been so rich that somehow I didn't want to just publish a book for the sake of publishing a book. I wanted it. When I published that book, I wanted it to be a good book that I thought it was a good book. And because I had been changing my understanding of what a good work is, so I wanted to rewrite it. And that's what I did. I I just totally, um, re reworked and, um, thought about how will the reader take this, will they like the narrative, Um, is this an interesting narrative. So more than writing just for academics or for our PhD committee, I thought about a wider public and I think that makes a lot of difference.
1: And this connects really well to my next question, like what kind of audiences did you have in mind while writing or who should read this book?
0: Yeah, that's very good because, you know, that's what they ask when you submit proposals to presses, right? And I thought anthropologists mainly, but the more that, like, more time after publication, this book has been out for a month, I get to hear from more people that were not the public I expected. So, of course, people in sexuality studies, queer studies, uh, and in anthropology, political anthropology. Uh, Those are people that I expected to kind of be interested, but more and more, for example, political scientists are reading the book and writing to me about the book and inviting me to events. So I'm actually going to take part in a a conference only with political theorists, which which kind of worries me somehow (laughs) because I, you know, after all, I'm an anthropologist, but I think that dialogue can be very interesting how someone in anthropology working on a kind of political theory uh, topic can enter in dialogue with political um, scientists. And maybe it's, you know, maybe from a perspective of an anthropologist, I'm I'm assuming that political theorists do something very different and perhaps they are actually interested in ideas like that. So that public is starting to kind of like, I'm relating to more and more people in political theory but then there are people totally outside of academia so we had an event at a bookstore in new york and that is a kind of lgbtq bookstore but so they have a public that is not necessarily made up of academics there are people that read you know romance and and they were very engaged too and 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 they were just you know just remarking at how readable as uh as a story the book is of course that there are as you said theoretical elements but um i don't think that they actually even the more theoretical parts they are not um outside of reach for someone who um, is not necessarily you know doing a phd in anthropology or so i think that people outside of academia actually can engage with the book too and i'm i didn't want to say that when i wrote the proposal because i didn't I didn't know how much actually I could deliver, right? If you say this is a a book for a wider audience, you better deliver. So I think I was a bit conservative and I said, well, that's mostly, you know, gender, sexuality and studies and anthropologists. But I think after the book came out, I'm getting good feedback from a wider audience.
1: That's very cool. Um, And my last question, what's your project right now? What's your, what's the next thing? (laughs) <laughs> well
0: so this you know this took me years to write which is uh, while I was writing it I was already doing more field work and I think that that's how life goes for most of us anthropologists that you finish your first project and then you start working and at the same time you're teaching but you're reworking your you know, your first material and then you're thinking about the next project and I, the, the project I'm working on, and there are different aspects of this current project, is totally connected to the first, even though it's not anymore based on a Shantitan. Um, so in, in the book, right, in the, in the Minoritarian Liberalism book, that is not a book only centered in one place, even though it's connected through the Shantitan and through the life of, the life of Natasha Kellen. The book has parts of it that's in the interior, the hinterlands of Brazil. And then parts of it, there's a whole chapter that's in Italy, for example. And when I propose to understand if there was this, um, almost a human trafficking scheme, sending people from the Shanti town to Rome, but in that chapter that I talk about religion, um, and the Afro-Brazilian religion in particular. There is a scene, a moment in which I go to an Afro-Brazilian ritual at the beach near the Shantitan and I was kind of amazed by the whole, um, um, there were so many people at the beach and there were um, uh, people uh, receiving spirits, right? There were uh, episodes of trance and if you're not from one of those religions, you probably you're not familiar with trance experiences or with how people get possessed by spirit. So I was there, and uh, some some spirit possessing um, a friend's body came to me and said, "You know, you you're gonna understand a lot more about this. You're gonna see. Uh, you're gonna see the truth about this." And I was at the same time kind of. I didn't even know how to address a spirit when you're talking, you know, when someone talking to you. But I was a bit, um, yeah, I was apprehensive during the whole um, ritual. And to me, it was a bit disappointing because even though I was expecting something major to happen that night, it didn't. And I thought, well, I don't know what the the spirit meant, but I didn't see the truth of it. And I haven't seen the truth of it up to this point, but what did happen? What did happen is that more and more I was getting involved in Afro-Brazilian religions and more invitations to rituals. And at some point I had a reading, you know, in Afro-Brazilian religions, people use carries or seashells for it's almost like a fortune-telling exercise. It's an oracle. And um, I had a reading and the reading amazingly told me something very similar to what the spirit had told me. And these are like totally different people, right? Not connected at all, different places in Rio but uh, in different places of Rio and different people. And the reading were like, the reading said um, yeah, I mean you're meant to be initiated and to know the kind of, the secrets of this religion. And um, I confess that it took me a long time to kind of not, I mean, I took it seriously, just that I was a little bit worried about what, you know, what do they mean? Do they mean I'm going to convert? Like, do what you know, what do they expect from me? And so my next project actually derives from that experience, derives from that encounter with Afro-Brazilian religions and the way that I had many readings afterwards, the way that... Um, I actually got initiated in one of the Afro-Brazilian religions much later, uh, called Candomblé, and how, you know, the kind of the Brazilian epicenter for Candomblé is actually they call they call Salvador the Bahia where I live now. They call it the Black Rome, right? But not in relation to Catholicism, but how it's a it's the Rome for Afro-Brazilian religions and mainly Candomblé. So I live in the city now, Salvador de Bahia, where you have a major, you know, it's the largest black city outside of Africa, anywhere in the world. And you have a major Candomblé population. And I was initiated in Candomblé here in Salvador before actually um, taking my job here. So I was initiated first and soon after got a job offered to move here. And those things go together. So it's not, it's amazing. I mean, it's up to me the way that anthropology, if you think of my first field work and how it, it's not just research separate from your personal life, not only during field work, but the consequences of your field work, you never know. I mean, if you change your life so much, you know, you live two years in a place like that, you make so many new friends and meet, meet so many people and connections, you never know what those experiences will lead to. So in a way... I had my field work and there was, you know, there were things from my first fieldwork work that made me get initiated later on, but also made me accept a job offer where I am right now. So, you know, it's not like you are the researcher first and then you choose your research topic only. It's like, sometimes you're immersed in this network of some forces. And in this case, non-humans, and at some point those agencies lead you to a job and lead you to a professional career too. So it's not from from your professional career to the research, but sometimes from the field to your professional career. And so now I'm here, I've been here for 10 years in Brazil. And I live in this very interesting, I, I love Salvador da Bahia, it's very beautiful, but very, and you know, also um, there are lots of problems, of course, as the largest black city, you can imagine how bad racism is, for example which is really difficult. And, you know, as I said, uh, religious racism is, is just growing and growing in Brazil. Constant attacks to Afro-Brazilian religions. But all that makes for, I think, experiences that are worth writing another book. Um, so as I prepare to that moment and to uh, start on that second book soon, I hope uh, it will be based more on kind of Afro-Brazilian experiences in Salvador, and how importantly, I think, they connect to uh, West Africa. Right? So um, those Afro-Brazilian religions are, a lot of them are based in Yoruba traditions and Yoruba language. And at some point, I realized that there's still a very important kind of flux movement of people between uh, like the, the two coasts. So you have people from the Western kind of part of Africa coming to Brazil and Brazilians still going, we sometimes, I think, make the mistake of thinking that that the movement between, you know, the kind of across the black Atlantic, it's true that it was more intense perhaps in the past, but it continues, right? We don't really pay a lot of attention to contemporary forms of movements and relationships and power dynamics. We know how bad slavery was and, you know, how, kind of the trauma of slavery. But those relations also continue, right? And they, they continue with people coming back from Africa and selling things here and, and, and taking goods from Brazil to Africa. And there are Brazilians that um, soon after the abolition of slavery in Brazil, or even before actually, went back to West Africa. So when I go to Nigeria, to Lagos, they want to show me the Brazilian quarters in Lagos. Oh, come and see the Brazilian quarters. And the surnames of people are Salvador because they lost their African surnames and then they took the surname of the city. They took the name of the city as surnames. Uh, So that's kind of ethnographically what I've been doing, where I've been going, but the argument, I think the argument is very much, um, it's more focused on abolition. They've kind of formal abolition in Brazil happened in 1888. And really what did that mean? for people in Brazil and above all for black people. Because if I follow some of my arguments from the first book, this is again, an example of normative operations of liberalism, right? That you would have someone like the state power or, you know, the, the, the power um, that could declare, this is the end of slavery and I sign a document, so that's how it was in Brazil. You, know, you sign a document, and then that's your, that's your freedom. I mean, that's your liberation. I think we need to be very skeptical, or we need to investigate that a lot more in those terms, that maybe there is a sense that that was an important normative moment in terms of liberation for Brazilians and most of all Black Brazilians. But what happens after that in terms of, oppression in terms of freedoms and liberties it's all i think up to ethnographic you know it requires more ethnographic understanding of how contemporary contemporarily people are living their freedoms in brazil and how that's related to people in west africa and what the afro-brazilian religions do so for example and sorry if i'm talking too long excited about this new project but uh for example I think something fundamental is how in afro-brazilian religions the what possession so-called possession does or trance is really to challenge the separation of the like self-contained individual and other entities right and non-humans so in normative liberalism part of the idea is that you possess property but you also you need to be in possession of your body that's you know, Paul Johnson makes that argument very well. You're in possession of your body, and what spirit possession, or uh, in in Blair they would say, what this um, when you're taken over when and when powers, non-human powers take over your body, that creates a big problem for normative understandings of liberalism because these are people that are no longer in control of their bodies, right? They are they're challenging. Basically, it's like um, in practice that it's a form of challenging normative understandings of freedom. And that's why I said, when you think of what the evangelical churches were doing, they were basically exercising those spirits or those um, deities from people's bodies. And by doing that, what they're doing is to reestablish a certain order which says it's wrong for you to be possessed Let me exercise and put things back into place, right? Your body here, non humans there. And and that's why I said that the evangelical sense of liberation to me is very normative. Because if you think, uh, both the kind of more state-based understandings of what it is to be a liberal subject is being just reinforced or reaffirmed by the evangelical church when it says, you know, you shouldn't be possessed. You, you need to be in control of yourself but you know in afro-brazilian religions the whole point in brazil much more than than in western africa i think is to have trance right and trance is the is the big moment of the celebrations of the rituals of you know it's, it's it's a major event and people are so thankful that there is trance that those divinities are coming and possessing taking over people's bodies but that's what i mean the the formal abolition of slavery does not it, it cannot account for a form of freedom that is based on looking that. Or if even if you think about maroon communities, you know, the communities that were formed during slavery, during slavery by runaway or people that sometimes bought their own slaveries, enslaved people that, that bought their own freedoms, enslaved people that bought their freedoms, or that managed to escape, and they formed their own Maroon communities. Also, that has been described in other uh, by other authors as a very particular type of freedom, that it wasn't accepted by the state. So the state was not happy that there were enslaved people running away and forming their communities. So that is also part of this experience of Black freedom, a very important experience, but it's not accounted by normative liberalism. So I'm gonna yeah that I'm hoping to bring together some of those other forms of um, freedoms and liberties and tell stories about um, kind of, uh, this form of Afro-Brazilian life connected to uh, West Africa and let's see um, let's see how it goes.
1: Well, it sounds like things aligned for you, aligned for you very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Moises, for joining us today. And um, it was really great to talk, to talk to you and read your book. And yes, we talked about uh, Moises Lino e Silva's uh, minor ter- min- Minoritarian Liberalism, A Travesty Life in, in a Brazilian Favela today. My name is Armand Sildes and until next time.